Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Neil Sample, who I'm pleased to welcome back to the broadcast. Neil's the Chief Information Officer of Northwestern Mutual, a financial services mutual organization with revenues exceeding $32 billion annually. As CIO, Neil leads the company's technology organization, which includes oversight of the major technology systems and developing and refining its financial planning digital platforms. Prior to joining Northwestern Mutual, Neil was the Chief Operating Officer at Express Scripts. In this interview, we discuss how being a mutual company as opposed to a public company allows IT and the broader organization to think with a longer-term perspective in mind and how that impacted the firm's actions during the pandemic. We discuss the difference the company is making in local communities through initiatives such as Outsource to America and High Tech, why Neil decided to join Northwestern Mutual as CIO after having been promoted out of that role to the COO post at Express Scripts, and how the CIO role has evolved to become an immensely influential one. Lastly, we discuss how being a former national champion debater has served him well in business, how the pandemic and changing consumer expectations have massively accelerated the pace of business change, why talent mobility is going to have a significant impact going forward, and a variety of other topics. This interview features insights from my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. It's available now for pre-order on Amazon or through gettingtonimble.com. Stick around after the interview to learn more. Neil Sample, welcome back to Technovation. It's great to speak with you again. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, uh, you, Neil, are the uh, Chief Information Officer of Northwestern Mutual. I believe you know that, but some others may not uh, know that until we until this conversation. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, in your own words, both kind of a brief description of Northwestern Mutual's uh, business, but also your purview as Chief Information Officer. Yeah. So at Northwestern Mutual, um, we're focused on delivering financial security for our 4.6 million clients. Um, we have a holistic approach that brings together trusted advisors and personalized financial plans to cover both insurance and investments, um, ultimately powered by technology and inside of a seamless digital experience. Um, what we think is unique about what we do as a company is again, the idea that Northwestern Mutual is a financial planning company. We aren't focused simply on uh, insurance. For example, even though we are an insurance manufacturer, we create our own policies and products. We aren't focused on, uh, for example, just um, investments, that our go-to-market, our strategy, and therefore our value proposition is about the integration of those two things um, on behalf of our clients. And so um, we have been doing this for over 160 years. Uh, we think we're, we're pretty good at it. Um, and we do it in a framework of mutuality. So we're a mutual company, uh, which means that we um, truly plan for the long-term benefit of our policyholders, uh, that we don't have shareholders, we don't have uh, private equity dollars, we, we don't have any leaks, if you will, um, that ultimately we exist for the benefit of our policy policyholders um, and in doing so, can offer a unique value proposition that's unmatched in the market. And talk a bit about your role as CIO. Part of your response talked about how all you described is powered by technology. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that happens and and uh, the role that you and your team play in that. 
Yeah. Um, I, so as CIO, uh, I lead the technology organization um, and key areas of accountability include our technology strategy. Um, so our architecture, infrastructure choices, cloud services, engineering, customer success. Um, it also extends to data and analytics. So not only the storing and shepherding, but how we're going to use that data. Our data science institute, for example, sits within the technology umbrella. Um, and it's about unlocking the uh, potential of all of the things that we know, um, the things that we've learned for the last 160 years and the things we um, expect to learn in the future. Um, it also includes enterprise risk and cybersecurity. So always uh, a significant concern, um, even a, a larger concern for us because what we do ultimately is we operate on trust. When we're creating financial value for folks, they join us um, in a journey uh, for financial planning that includes both risk and investment products. And, and most of our customers, our whole life customers, for example, um, who've been with us more than five years, the typical um, tenure of our policyholders is about 43 years um, after that first window. Uh, so you can tell it's a long-term relationship built on trust and therefore cybersecurity, protecting their information, protecting their assets, critically important. Um, and then of course, the typical things you would add in there as CIO, like our digital workplace solutions, um, our uh, productivity, effectiveness, collaboration tools, the things that uh, keep our employees running. Yeah, interesting. And I, I so you, you started to articulate some of the differences of mutuality. Uh, this your first experience at a mutual company, having worked actually for a very interesting array of organizations previously, um, you know, t tech leaders like uh, Yahoo and eBay, uh, behemoths prior to this behemoth, uh, in organizations like American Express and Express Scripts, uh, but your first experience in a mutual company, you you alluded to the fact that mutuality, one of the advantages, I believe you were you were painting it as an advantage, is this long term perspective that the organization can take. You're not um, you know a slave to the quarterly earnings and the quarterly reporting to Wall Street. Uh, you can make decisions that are longer term in nature. Talk about how that perspective. Uh, paints the 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 picture for IT itself uh, as you think about the investments that you're making and how the perspective might be different from past experiences where you were in a public public uh, company. Right, uh, great question. So mutuality, um, if you break it down, it's not just a governance structure and a, and a philosophy. There are two um, core advantages that uh, that work, especially in this type of business. Um, the first one is that longer term focus. And so unlike a, um, a company that's got uh, a senior, senior leadership team, for example, incentivized on, say, a batch of three-year options and PSUs and RSUs and, and a, a street and a board that has a, a fairly narrow range of expectations, um, we can put a dollar into an initiative on the expectation that we're going to get $10 out in five years and nothing along the way. Um, and that's, you know, something that's better than putting a dollar in knowing that you're going to get two out in three years, uh, but it'll keep your shareholders happy. And so be, by not having those shareholders, it unlocks us um, for our value horizon, which means we can take investments that have a longer ROI, but a higher ultimate expected value. And so that um, being untethered from that quarterly report, that earnings report, for example, or or looking at EPS and, and sort of having the street watch and equity associated with the company allows you to make sort of the best decisions regardless of the time frame. 
Um, and so that to us is, is one way that through the decisions that we make, because we're unrestricted by the short-term thinking, we can generate more value. The second thing, and this goes to our product value proposition, um, because there are no leaks in the system, because we're not doing uh, share buybacks, we're not doing um, you know, uh, dividends to shareholders, for example, what that means is all of the value that accumulates within the company um, ultimately goes back to our policyholders, which means we have the um, greatest value proposition, that we produce more value within the system and therefore can have products uh, and services that are ultimately worth more. That if you have, a, again, a separate set of constituents that are siphoning off some of the value created by the company, that value can't be returned through the products to your policyholders, which means your products won't have as much value. So in that respect, um, a mutual company is, is remarkably powerful. How does that play out in a function like information technology? Um, I'll give you one example. When I first got here, um, the team was already in flight uh, evaluating um, our data centers, that we have data centers that are um, actually wholly owned and operated, which is, it feels like a little bit of a, of an antiquated notion to me coming from, uh, you know, advanced companies, newer companies, and even startups where you wanted to fully variableize everything. And so my first thoughts, which, you know, oh, we have data centers. Okay. <laughs> not, not super exciting. But was, you know, why aren't we in the cloud? Why haven't we virtualized? Why wouldn't we rent? Why wouldn't we take these things and do an inversion and turn them into potentially a, a revenue producing asset? Why wouldn't we flip them or move to a colo facility um, and get uh, the shared, um, share the fixed cost uh, through a vendor relationship? Um, and so all of my answers would have led me to something that would have been done within 12 to 36 months and would have had uh, a very different uh, tenor than what we actually did. What did we do? Turns out we went and we went ahead, we did the evaluation uh, and we decided to invest in those data centers to upgrade both the cooling and the power. They'd been on uh, online for about 30 years, both were sort of old and inefficient, needed to be upgraded um, to the tune of, of you know, millions of dollars. And the reason it didn't occur to me as possible was the break even for that proposition was something like seven years out. And if you were to go to a, a board meeting and say, hey, listen, <laughs> uh, I would love to invest a ton of money into um, this fixed asset and uh, we're going to see a break even in seven years, they would say, you have no better use of that capital. There's no way to return value to the street. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, on the other hand, though, when you're unrestricted by time and you're at a mutual, I will tell you what, if you roll that clock out 20 years, which is absolutely within the usable lifetime of that asset, or even 30 years, which is kind of at the tail end, um, it is by far and away the best decision that you can make if you're fully utilizing the asset that will not only see uh, a better cost per on the on the equipment that's there, on the power that's there, the cooling that's there. We're not paying somebody else's markup, um, but we're also going to get these intangibles along the way that we think about as a company, like the appreciation on the real estate asset itself, which is something I've never thought about as a CIO before. So the the thinking, the framework created by mutuality leads to different decisions um, in technology that ultimately are are the most beneficial. Um, and I didn't think, I'll, I'll be honest, Peter, I don't 
think I thought of myself as overly constrained before that I don't think I took, I wouldn't have said, told you that I took options off the table. I would have told you I was making the best choices that we could, but I didn't realize the limitations of the choices imposed by uh, the governance structure of the company. So different, very different. That's a great, great example, Neil, and how fascinating. Um, I, I wonder uh, how that extends to these most unusual circumstances of the past 10 or 11 months as we've been uh, faced with the pandemic, uh, the quarantine, uh, the vast differences in the ways we must do business as a re- in order to stay safe, um, which is for many companies also led to uh, a significant amount of, of belt tightening, obviously, depending on the industry, something even uh, more, more significant than that. Um, but, but especially if you're running a, a public company during these times, you might make, uh, take more drastic actions uh, more quickly. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that translated through to these, what at least in our lifetime uh, has been unprecedented circumstances. Yeah, it's a great question as well. Um, You know, when we think about the external benchmarks to determine whether or not we're doing a good job uh, organizationally and on behalf of our policyholders, instead of looking at market price, Instead of looking at uh, EPS, other revenue ratios, et cetera, um, you know, we look at our ratings agencies. And we have the luxury at this point of being uh, one of two companies in the U.S. who have a AAA uh, or top tier rating and a neutral to positive outlook. Um, and so what that should probably tell you is, well, we must be actually doing something right. Um, with respect to the COVID response, I, I do think one of the differences, and it comes from not only the way we govern and run the company, but mutuality itself, um, is that long-term view. Uh, And we did not take what I would call sort of short-term actions. Um, And that doesn't mean we didn't do things in the short run. Of course, we moved people to work from home and that sort of thing. But we didn't do things because of how they were going to impact us in the next quarter or in the next year. That we were still able to take a long-term framework, long-term approach to uh, our thinking and, and basically long-term analysis. And what that means is we aren't as jumpy when it comes to uh, responding to uh, changes in the market. It means that we have a lot of dry powder, for example, and that when equities are down, we have more of an option to push in for, you know, when we think about our, our general account. Um, it means that uh, we were more tempered, I think, in our response Um, Again, because we didn't have a short-term critic in the form of an earnings uh, statement or a market price um, that was going to drive short-term behavior. So I do think we came into it um, keenly aware of the impacts, uh, but thoughtful. And as I mentioned before, we had more opportunity. We had a larger solution set um, because we weren't driven by what's going to happen in the next uh, annual cycle, for example, and, and what is the... Um, you know, expense base that we're going to have to grow over. So we were able to be, I think, more thoughtful because we had more choices. Um, And so in that respect, um, you know, we joke that we were built for this. Nobody was built for it because we didn't know uh, that this was coming. Um, On the other hand, this is not the first pandemic that we've been through as a 160-year-old company. Um, And we learned lessons the first time that we carried through forward uh, this time. And, And so, you know, it's not a it's not a good thing at the end of the day, but there isn't a company that I would have rather been at uh, to go through this um, in the seat that I hold. That's a, a, a 
remarkable statement. And, and uh, certainly, uh, I'm sure you count yourself as lucky to be able to, to say that. Um, you know, wh- one of the things that's been very interesting to, to learn, learn about um, what you and your team are getting involved in is uh, part of this broader set of activities of Outsource to America, the, the, an initiative that w- originally originated in cities like Hartford and Detroit, uh, cities that have are, are in close proximity to great universities and great talent, but have much lower cost bases. And in some cases, D- Detroit being a very great example of that, uh, have traditional industries that have, um, well, gotten, if not completely gone away, at least have, have minimized greatly and impacted uh, prospects for many people in those cities. Milwaukee is the third of those cities, an outsource, outsource to Milwaukee program has been developed. And I know it's something that that you've participated in in partnership with other organizations. Talk a bit about um, a bit about that partnership and its impact, please. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Hartford and, and Detroit, for example. What one of the things that uh, struck me when I arrived in Milwaukee um, is a little bit of a sort of an economic and, and social similarity to some of those cities, especially Detroit. Um, you know that Milwaukee is a city uh, that, if you you know rolled the clock back uh, twenty years, um, had more Fortune five hundred uh, companies based here, uh, sitting here. Um, than it does today. And if you rolled back the clock 20 years prior to 1980, um, the same thing was true. And so that says the trend is kind of going in uh, in the wrong direction, if you will. Um, you know, we had a concentration of, of manufacturing, um, whether it was uh, in sort of, um, you know, Harley Davidson with vehicles, for example, or breweries, uh, another fine tradition here. Um, that uh, was a little less digital at the end of the day. This wasn't like growing up in Silicon Valley where you had more of a service orientation. So again, not to the same extent as Detroit, but uh, similar, right? So a a decreased reliance on those manufacturing jobs uh, led to a softening in this economy. Um, Socially as well, um, Milwaukee was a a bit of a tale of two cities that we had uh, historical challenges with uh, redlining, which I think is a a concept a lot of folks weren't familiar with 20 years ago and had certainly existed uh, for a long time and has has led to some disparate impacts. So if you look at our African-American and and Hispanic communities, for example, uh, in Milwaukee, I think you would fairly characterize them as underserved, that they don't have the same um, access or economic opportunities um, because of that historical consequence. And so again, you start to see a, a bit of an economic and social similarity in, in some ways to a, a city like Detroit um, or even to a lesser extent, Hartford. So Outsource to America went into those cities and said, you know what, we have an opportunity as technology buyers, uh, for example, to choose how we go to market, how we do uh, what it is we do, how we staff our teams, how we bring in developers and testers and so on. Um, and so we could take a, a fairly easy approach and, and pull something off the shelf, uh, work with an existing vendor partner, et cetera, or we can take uh, a little bit of a longer path and, and do something that we think ultimately will be economically beneficial and serve our local communities to a much greater extent. And so that's what Outsource to Milwaukee represents is that, um, you know, those, these dollars could have gone, for example, to vendors and other communities but instead, we'll put those dollars to work here in a way that, again, is economically uh, sustainable and will hopefully create some advantage and then better our community. Um, that said, it's an awful lot of work. Let me, let me begin with, uh, if it were obvious and easy, we would have done it before. 
Um, it does involve training programs. It does involve awareness and access. It does involve a willingness to invest and put down uh, a footprint that's otherwise going to be speculative, that you don't know if it's going to work. Um, we do think this one's going to work with our partner, uh, Galaxy, for example. They've uh, worked and done this before in, in Detroit and in Hartford. So we, we know that this is a, um, a successful recipe if we stick to it. Um, but it's not easy. It does require scale. You can't be a small company and put this together. You, you do need the scale of a Northwestern Mutual as at least an anchor tenant. Um, but then when you're done, what do you have? When you're done, you have a technology uh, workforce that you didn't have before locally, um, which can, I think, hopefully have uh, side benefits as well to making Milwaukee more of a tech hub. Um, and then you've also got uh, the advantage of doing this well in your community, creating jobs in places that have uh, been otherwise underserved. Um, and, and so I think that there's an opportunity to do well and good at the same time. And so it's something that we're really excited about. Um, it's in the early stages. We've got um, dozens of employees who are actually uh, in jobs today. Uh, by the end of next year, we'd love that to be hundreds. Um, and, and at the end of the day for a city like Milwaukee, we think, uh, it can make a real difference. That's fantastic. I know another program that you've gotten involved in, um, which is an, a, a technology outreach program that introduces students to what's possible. So to say is high tech. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that program and, and your participation in it. Yeah. So high tech is a, a very different value proposition. It, it starts a lot earlier. Um, it's one of our STEM outreach programs. And one of the things that we believe is that historically, there have been a lot of challenges with STEM education. I, you know, it's funny, 20 years ago, people would have said STEM, what's that? Um, and now I think we're, we're all pretty uh, well uh, familiar. I think we're pretty well versed on some of the challenges. Um, one of those challenges is that our ec education system for a lot of years um, was directive, um, that it guided uh, young women, for example, more towards um, softer sciences, the liberal arts, et cetera. And it uh, guided young men more towards hard sciences, um, math and physics and so on. And, you know, there have been a lot of studies to show that not only was that an output from the system, um, but the system itself uh, had unconscious bias in the classroom. And until we were conscious of it and, and started to address it, you know, that problem just sort of flowed forward for years. So what we know is that in order to counteract some of those um, ways of being in the past, it, we can simply reach out and get everybody access to STEM. Um, I believe as a CIO, of course, um, and the, you know, Department of Labor Statistics will tell you as well that there are going to be more technology jobs on average uh, than there had been in the past. And so it's really just good economic sense to do this type of outreach. Um, you don't have to do it just from the goodness of your heart. But so what we do with this program is we reach back into the educational system, uh, pre-collegiate. We have an internship program, of course, for kids in college. But high tech, uh, we will create, we have high school interns, for example, that come in and do projects, learn things like um, agile methodologies or how to do uh, testing, for example, software testing, software quality. Um, we also do things like Hour of Code, which uh, allows our developers and engineers and others to go out and uh, teach people directly how to code, um, which is a necessary skill set, um, even for some basic activities that you wouldn't necessarily think about as, as computer science or engineering jobs. But if you're a financial analyst, 
um, the ability to, to operate in big data or even to write macros in an Excel spreadsheet. It, it is coding and it is pretty important. So that program reaches about 9,000 local Milwaukee students annually. Um, and we think it's the way to sort of fill the top of the funnel, if you will, to create an opportunity for folks um, to get exposure to science uh, and technology type uh, activities and decide if it's worthwhile for them and, and to give them access. And so we're really proud of that program. It's a little less commercially focused um, and it has more of a, of a bias towards um, our volunteer employees that, that we actually ask them to participate in Hour of Code uh, and they're more than eager and willing to sign up to help those students out of a, a feeling of altruism and uh, giving back to the community. That's fantastic. I, I also wanted to ask you, uh, I mentioned uh, earlier, of course, as, you, as you've described, your role as a CIO. This is not your first post as a chief information officer. You, you held that role, for example, at Express Scripts, uh, the uh, PBM Pharmacy Benefit Management um, and, uh, organization based in St. Louis. You were the chief information officer of that company. You, you rose to the, to the role of chief operating officer of that organization, and now you are the CIO again. Um, I, I'd be curious about, um, you know, there, there are some people who uh, put a lot into the optics of titles and, um, you know, uh, perhaps a, 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 an interpretation might be that this is going back to a role that you once had that you had been elevated out of. Uh, and I'm curious what, what it was about this opportunity that, um, and I'm, I don't know that you're necessarily wired that way in the first place, Neil, but, but um, where the, it was attractive to go to your old role, granted in a very different set of surroundings and circumstances. Yeah, it's a great question, Peter. I think um, a couple of things. First and foremost, um, Northwestern Mutual is a great company and, and wanted to join that mission. Um, you know, our ability to provide financial security to so many um, in a way that uh, um, is, uh, I, I wouldn't say the company is, is altruistic, that we're, you know, financially motivated, but we're motivated on behalf of our clients, on behalf of our policy owners. Um, which creates a, a really powerful dynamic um, that we never have to compromise on our mission and that our mission is one that I think is really actually good with a, with a capital G. And so it was a really great company to join. Um, so that's what got me interested in the beginning. Um, but in terms of the role, I, I would sort of have two perspectives on that. Um, the first perspective is that with a company like Northwestern Mutual, this was a point of leverage that we hadn't always historically been, uh, say, remarkable in terms of technology. Um, and what that provided for me personally was the opportunity to come in and make a difference right away um, to a business that I was less familiar with. Um, and you don't always have that opportunity. Um, I'd never worked at a mutual company before, but more importantly, I, I really hadn't worked in a company that was focused on insurance, uh, much less uh, life insurance. Um, you know, that said, of course, companies like Express Scripts or American Express had certain insurance products, um, but they were uh, on the side. They were, you know, um, not the core business. Um, and so, you know, this was a great way to come in and, and actually create some value uh, before I was actually immersed in the business, before I had sort of the same innate commercial sense of having been uh, part of the uh, vehicle for a long time. So that was a good opportunity is, you know, you sort of seize the day, take the opportunity where it is. Um, the second thing I would say, though, 
is that the CIO seat is one that's pretty remarkable. So, you know, I did, for example, move from CIO to, to chief operating officer at Express Scripts, um, which we ultimately sold uh, to Cigna in a fairly significant transaction a couple of years ago. Um, similarly, uh, you know, moved from CIO and enterprise growth to president at American Express. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I think was possible um, at the end of the day was that technology provides this unique experience, this unique seat, the ability to see the speeds and feeds of the business, um, to know what's going on, because really the platform is the product. And it, it doesn't matter whether you think about um, whether we're going out and selling and what our conversions look like, or you're thinking about our investment returns, if you're thinking about our actuarial success and, and how we are uh, performing from an underwriting perspective, from a persistency perspective, et cetera, all of the things that we do are math. Um, and I know that's an oversimplification, but it's math about underwriting, it's math about investments, all of those things are mixed in with a human element and it all runs on the platform. And so what better way to rapidly learn a business than to operate that platform, than to see how that platform uh, meets the needs of its constituencies or doesn't, um, and ultimately grow that platform to enable the business as well. So it's a really powerful seat to start. Um, you know, I think uh, 20 years ago, that probably started to change. 40 years ago, we were in the old school model of Technology is a cost center, um, and it wasn't seen as strategic. Um, I think there are very few companies left in the world who can't, uh, who can operate successfully without technology being strategic. And so, if you'd asked this question in the '80s, I would have given you a, a different answer, um, or might have even gone into a different place. But um, you know, with the advent of technology, with the consumerization, the demand for access. Um, coupled with the idea that you get to see everything that goes on and what truly powers the business. I think it's a pretty obvious seat um, at a really great company. That's fantastic. Um, I also wanted to uh, mention a fascinating thing that uh, about you is you, you were an NCAA debate champion and uh, you were kind enough at a, a meta strategy conference in 2019 to debate uh, Ed McLaughlin, the president of operations and technology at MasterCard on blockchain. I won't revisit the the details of that, uh, for those who are interested, you can hear the the, the, the podcast uh, where, where we we publish or broadcast that very debate, uh, which was so interesting. But uh, and I'm no debater, although I am a, um, a, a father of two and quickly uh, learning the, the the need for good debate skills as my as my sons grow. But but um, I know that a, a, one of the key tenets of, of of a good debater is not only understanding. Uh, the fundamentals of the argument you're making, but also being able to actually argue the other side. And I wonder, as a business leader who has, of course, a variety of important decisions to make and weigh, where you where you reach a fork in the road, and there may be at times two compelling potential options to take. How your debate skills, and that's one of many, by the way. I, I don't mean to, to limit it to that, but how your debate skills have impacted your abilities as a leader. Yeah, that's a it's a good question. I, that is one of the. Well, I have a few Wikipedia entries, I guess. That is one of them. Um, so it's fair game. Um, <laughs> so I think there are a couple of things that uh, a couple of skills that get developed in debate that um, really translate in a powerful way to the business world. Um, the first one is what you mentioned, which is the ability to sort of see the other side. 
Um, it doesn't matter whether you're in, you know, policy debate uh, or value debate. You know, there are different uh, debate frameworks out there. I, I did both, for example, in college um, and in high school. Um, the thing that happens, though, is that every uh, round, if you will, you're switching sides. And so you'll have a topic, uh, for example, like um, it'll be something on the environment or human rights or space exploration. It, it doesn't really matter. But you're going to spend a roughly equal amount of time on both sides. You will uh, be an advocate one round and a, and a detractor the next. Um, and so uh, you do have to be able to see the other side. And if you're going to be effective at it, you actually have to not only evaluate the other side, but anticipate their response to your own and, and how um, an issue is going to uh, evolve over the, over the course of essentially a debate round, um, which is a little bit tactical, but more importantly, over the course of time, the impacts of the argument, which is more of a strategic view. So I think that nets out to something pretty powerful. I think that nets out to when you're presented with three options. Uh, for example, the team is coming to you with a recommendation. Think of them as all competing alternatives and evaluate those alternatives in the context of, of the larger business that you understand, even though somebody's coming to you with a functional recommendation. So I think that that leads to an interrogation of the facts, the, the evaluation of the alternatives in a way that's fairly rigorous. Um, and yes, switching sides makes makes an awful lot of um, an awful lot of dis a difference. The other thing I would say, though, and, and one thing people don't always think about. So my last couple of years uh, in college, for example, did value debate, which was a different experience than policy debate. In value debate, one of the core distinctions, though, is that you didn't even know the topic of the debate until about fifteen minutes beforehand. And at 15 minutes beforehand, they did the draw, if you will, is what it was called. And you would hear the topic and you would write it down or type it out. And you would make sure you got that right. Um, and then you would either construct your case uh, or prepare your defense um, very, very rapidly in the course of literally a handful of minutes. Um, and I will tell you that capacity is critically important in the live and dynamic discussions. So whether you're doing, you're in a senior leadership team meeting or you're a quarterly business review, um, or you're in the hot seat with an analyst, um, having the capacity to evaluate an issue very, very quickly um, is a skill that, that serves you well in business. Um, it's, it's something to be able to get to a decision rapidly or, or engage. It's something else to say, you know what, I haven't thought about that. Give me a couple days. I'll go um, formulate my thoughts uh, and then get back to you. You know, it, it introduces a latency um, to decision making that you really don't want. And so I do think that that's something else that came out of debate that's uh, super useful in business. I think, um, you know, it's not what people perceive the value to be. A lot of folks imagine that somehow it makes you persuasive or all of a sudden you've got a silver tongue. Um, and I, and what's interesting is, um, you know, I won a debate tournament just as an example uh, where I was one of the lowest rated speakers. It was when I was a, a freshman actually in college because they rate your speaking ability separate from the win or loss in the round. Hmm. And I was actually one of the lowest rated speakers because I was clumsy <laughs> 
and awkward. I wasn't necessarily pleasant. I didn't understand the language and decorum, um, but the ideas were right. And so the thing that worked there um, is at the end of the day, debate is really about this conflict of ideas. And so my partner and I ended up winning a tournament, but but we were we were not the we weren't winning it on our our silver tongue devilishness. <laughs> we were not we weren't gonna get out there and and sell used cars. Um, but he went on to uh, you know help develop policy at, at the USAID at the Agency for International Development because that's what you know we were rewarded for. So um, again, it's really about that uh, idea depth of evaluation, rapidity of evaluation. Um, and I think it's pretty powerful. I'd recommend it to everybody, of course. That's fantastic. Um, last question I wanted to ask you about is just trends. We've talked about a few of them that uh, that are relevant to your business. But as you, as you look out two or three years, or in your case, with some of the longer time horizons that you have the benefit of contemplating, uh, what are some of the trends, maybe, maybe one or two, that are rising, rising to the top of, of your agenda? So one of the first things um, that you, you have to put out there, I think, is the acceleration of business um, that, that, you know, and it's, 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 I've been hearing about this for 20, 30 years. <laughs> it's getting cliche at this point, um, is that the pace of change is continuously faster. Um, and, and it's just true um, that, that the pace of change is come, becoming more and more rapid. Um, and I do think, for example, that uh, COVID, we saw a step function in um, uh, the adoption of certain technologies than, than we wouldn't, that we wouldn't have seen and maybe didn't ever expect to see. Um, if you look at uh, age, if you look at uh, demographics, for example, um, there was an entire cadre of folks, of, of older individuals, for example, that you never really thought you were going to fully penetrate. You always said, hey you know, with retirees, they're going to be less likely to use digital applications. They're going to be less likely to access, let's say, your portal online, that sort of thing. Um, and then overnight, for example, if grandparents wanted to talk to their grandkids, they better learn how to use Zoom, right? We saw this step <laughs> function in access to, uh, to technology from a population that we weren't sure was ever necessarily going to get there. Or if they were, it was going to be very, very slow versus our digital natives. So I think that's something that that is not only true, but we continue to exceed expectations on the pace of change. Um, related to that, um, I do think that um, consumer expectations are being set now by um, by comparisons out of the vertical. And what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, it used to be that you would look at a oh, I don't know, something like J.D. Power and you would compare your customer satisfaction rates versus, you know, when I was at American Express, we had won for, I think, seven years in a row and our competitors were Discover Card and, you know, Visa, MasterCard or large issuing banks. And now when we think about, um, are we meeting a bar from a digital experience? I don't think about other insurance companies. I don't think about other companies that do planning or investments. I mean, I do, but where are my consumer expectations coming from? They're coming from Amazon. They expect that type of access. They expect that level of predictability, for example, in delivery. Um, where are their consumer electronics experiences coming from? Like when they think about their applications on their phone, et cetera, it's coming from the Apple ecosystem or it's coming from the Android ecosystem. The people don't say, well, 
I think, Neil, you know, the application that Northwestern Mutual puts out there is is really good compared to what New York Life has in the market. They don't. They, they know what they like and what works for them, and that's their entire ecosystem, and they compare us to the rest of it. There is no consumer comparison to competitors. It's to what they know is best of breed. And what that means is best of breed is continuously, again, evolving faster and faster because what's great comes from a, a corner you don't even expect um, at some point. So that's trend one. It's going to absolutely continue. I think trend two, um, and this, again, a little bit of cliche is really around data um, and analytics that you cannot overstate the value and prevalence uh, or in prevalence, excuse me, uh, pervasiveness of um, artificial intelligence, uh, machine agents, automation, um, it's, it's sort of everywhere. You know, I'm looking at my desk um, and I see three, no less than three agents uh, within my field of view. So, you know, I've got an Alexa, I've got a, a Google uh, Assistant and apparently a Siri that are all right here. All of them are are actually disabled because I have a security mindset. But for most <laughs> consumers, there are three robots essentially here to help me with my uh, with my personal life, and that's very true in the professional world as well. That we're seeing a significant advancement, doubling down, if you will, on on big data for machine learning, for artificial intelligence, for analytics agents, RPA. Um, and I just don't think that that's actually going to slow down. I still think we're on the up curve uh, in terms of speed there. Um, the last thing, and, and again, sticking with the theme of what's the future look like and then crossing it with COVID, um, I would say the ways of working uh, are going to be very, very different. And there's going to be a, a heavier focus on, for example, talent and culture within that differences, within that difference. I, I think we're going to all talk about, well, how much more work from home is there going to be? How much more of a focus on collaboration tools versus in-person meetings? And I think those are going to be universally true for everyone. But I also think that talent mobility um, and the ability to address someone wherever they are is actually going to have a, a significant impact. It's going to make things um, easier, for example, like outsourced to Milwaukee, the access to communities of need is actually going to go up because the fixed cost or the commute time or these other non so like these social determinants of success are actually going to be obliterated by technology, which is amazing. Um, you know, when I look at uh, women in technology, for example, one of the things that we have found um, is that COVID uh, had an outsized impact on women in technology. So there were some a couple of really powerful studies out there that showed that women were more likely to bear the brunt, uh, to bear the overhead, to bear the cost of this pandemic, um, and so found themselves uh, more often, for example, uh, kids weren't in school, and so who was picking up the slack? It turns out it was women, right? And so we sort of moved backwards a little bit. Well, what is a more flexible, ultimately uh, facilitated technology workplace mean for those folks? Mm -hmm. It means that they can be more flexible with their schedules. It means there are more opportunities to work remotely. It means that they don't have to um, sort of bear the brunt of this, you know, sort of narrow focused, you know, physical location limited uh, impact. And so I think what's going to happen is we saw these short term impacts of COVID that were fairly negative. Uh, for women in technology, but women in the workplace in general. 
But I think if we can roll it forward and get adoption of those technologies, get adoptions of collaboration tools, adopt a more willing practice to allow flexibility in the workplace where you're working from, not only can we turn that trend back, but we can go even farther um, and compensate for some of those uh, historical challenges as well. So I think there's a good news story there in talent and culture that is going to be coupled to the ways of working story that's unexpected. So something I'm looking forward to. That's excellent. Well, Neil Sample, thank you so much for joining me uh, again on Technovation. It's always great to speak with you. You're a font of knowledge, drawing from your many experiences. Uh, and uh, it's great to great to hear that you, you are doing well, that your business is also doing well. I hope that continues to be the case uh, through what, we, what remains of, of the current pandemic. But it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Peter. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In an era of unprecedented technology progress and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others, have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same. To learn more, visit gettingtonimble.com. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Wednesday when my guest will be Ian Barkin, the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer of Sykes.